As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 112 of Real Blend. A podcast that thinks the mayor is more of a villain than the shark. No, my name is Sean no. Don't O'Connell. do this. Don't start the show I am this the way. Managing director of Cinema Blend, and we have a very exciting episode of Real Blend. Not anymore. Planned for you. Uh, unfortunately, more major delays from the Hollywood studios, which we will get into. Uh, and a guest we have this week. Uh, she's the director of an amazing documentary that is featured on the Rise of Skywalker. Uh, Blu-ray and DVD, which hopefully people were able to pick up. Her name is Debs Patterson and some fantastic stories from the production of uh, Star Wars Episode Nine, and just some really good legacy stories in general. So uh, her interview is coming up. Again, as I mentioned, I'm Sean O'Connell. Joining me uh, this week on Real Blend, as always, from Washington, D.C., it is Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5. Hi, Kev. Sean O'Connell, how are you, sir? And yes, the mayor is the villain in Jaws. No, great, great to talk to no, you, sir. No, because here's okay. Here's the thing, guy. The get shark it out of your system. is not just being a shark. Sharks don't behave that way. And the movie so okay. incorrectly changed people's perceptions of sharks in an incorrect manner that the author Peter Benchley even came out and regretted how much the movie changed people's perception of what sharks are and what they could do because the movie portrayed the shark as a villain. You can't make this argument of, oh, it's just being a shark. It wasn't. When when have you ever seen a video of a shark leaping onto a boat and chomping after a guy? Shark Week. I watch Shark Week. Jesus Christ. And that goes to the exact... So this this was a question that got raised in in the tweets about this. Uh, Doctor or Frankenstein? Frankenstein two would be considered different the movies. It's no, it's not Frankenstein. No one created. Then, then you're saying like, oh, is it is it God or the shark? Who's the villain? The shark's mom is the shark's, the shark's mom. mom. Yeah, the villain. maybe the maybe the shark mom. was raised poorly. I mean, Mama you shark. Know. Mama I feel like the argument of like the mayor is the villain is the argument that people make to try to sound like they're like a, like a, a, a more cerebral movie watcher. It's the no, not at all. Shark. The no, shark. it's not. Spielberg would tell you it's the shark. I bet you he wouldn't. The other voice you're hearing is uh, Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. Hi, handsome. How are you doing? Oh, fuck off. 
<laughs> uh, a little reminder that if you are enjoying conversations like this, you can head over to our Facebook community page and weigh in. Actually, someone do me a favor on that page. I know you guys are all listening. Uh, make a poll. I want to hear a poll uh, for Jaws. Who is the real villain of Jaws? Uh, first option, the mayor. Second option, the shark. The third option, Jake Hamilton. Uh, fourth option, other. Uh, and then you can weigh in with what your creative he, things for other. Here, here's the exact argument as to why the shark isn't the villain. But you Who guys didn't let, respond to my argument. You didn't respond on. to my argument that the shark is not being a shark. Okay. That's so wait, wait, wait. I'm you, you know the shark's mentality that it was there to kill people for sure. No, you know I, I know that sharks don't do the fucking thing that the shark does in Jaws, so much so that it cost people in the 70s to go out and kill sharks. And Peter Benchley said, I regret doing this, I regret writing this story because it has incorrectly per- made changed people's perception of what sharks are in real life. Therefore, <laughs> That's an opinion. he is it's not an opinion, he's a fucking like scientist. Oh, okay. He's a scientist. He's Wait, an scientist. He, he, he's the leader. Be- uh, he was. He was the leader of shark uh, conservation post Jaws because of what Jaws did to people's perception Jake, of sharks. In, in Sharknado, is the shark the villain or the tornado? Oh my god! Oh, <laughs> it's a great I, question. I cannot believe that this that this was such a casual conversation that came up today because I did a top just, five best villains list on air and it, it fucking snowballed into this. Here's what I'm gonna say. Kevin, only thing up. I want to say about it is two things have never point. happened to the set. Kevin and wrap us up. When has that ever happened in the history of the show? The mayor let people back in the water. He's the villain. No That's question. True. People could point. more less people would have died. If you take the mayor out of the picture, the shark is still killing people. Less people would have died. If the mayor closed the beach, Fact. he's the villain because he, he would have just gone to a different town. The mayor Fact. wanted money. And he wanted tourism. That is a villain. That is an ill-intentioned character that led to the death of people. The shark was in its own territory and humans were in its territory. Shark, we not the are villain. now posting full episodes on Cinema Blend's YouTube page. So if you'd rather stream the show over there, uh, head to youtube.com backslash Cinema Blend and you can subscribe. I'm also going to note that um, if you're enjoying Westworld this season, unlike Jake Hamilton, uh, you can watch my reaction it videos. not good, dude. Um, it's different. It's definitely different. Um, and of course we're available everywhere podcasts uh, can be found, but wouldn't you also argue that the leftovers, which is a show that you made me watch, uh, is drastically different from season one to season two, that they are completely different. Yeah. But like you can change and still be a good show. Like, like shows evolve as they realize what they are becoming in, in cases, even like, like the first season of the office and in leftovers, but Westworld seems to be blowing at the whims of whatever people on Reddit are screaming. And, you know, the the second season feels like a course correction from the first season, and the third season feels like a course correction. It, it all just feels like every all the writers are sitting around a table going like, well, they didn't like that, so let's try something. And I just feel like this whole futuristic – it's not – Westworld at all. I mean, Leftovers is still at its core a show about people trying to come to terms with the fact that they were left behind. Westworld is literally not about Westworld anymore. Well, I'd make an argument, but with getting into really deep spoiler territory, let's have that conversation off air. Kevin, you want to throw something? Well, no, I was just going to say there's a lot of shows that you almost have to back up with an explanation prior to watching it. Like I remember with Better Call Saul, we told Jake that season one and two aren't at season three and four level. And I remember Jake, like like uh, we were arguing about it one day and you're like, well, you shouldn't have to say that the first two seasons are good and, th- and then it gets better. But 
And, uh, obviously, Leftovers did that. Apparently, I've never seen Leftovers, but apparently that's what happened with Leftovers. It just changes. And it's The different. Office. Yeah, The mm-hmm. Office apparently – I mean, I watched season one and two of The Office, and season one is drastically different. Yeah, but I would also argue that there's a big difference between, like, hey, dude, just get through the first six episodes of The Office, and then it clicks into gear, versus you have to watch two full seasons of a show. And granted, I, I, and I'm not like I'm not sliding Better but Call Saul. Right? The first two seasons of Better Call Saul are good TV. Good TV. Right. Yeah. The, the third season is great TV. That being right. said, I don't think it has touched um, Breaking Bad yet. Breaking Bad? Interesting. Oh, I thought you said it was on the level of Breaking Bad. No, no, no. It is not on the level of Breaking Bad. Oh, wait till you see it. But, but because I also feel like that's such an like that is such an impossible standard. That that's like telling your kid to go play it's basketball hard. and then saying like, "Well, you're not Michael Jordan." So like it it I don't think for me it's ever because I mean, you know, and I, I do trust say me, that. That's that's <laughs> yes, you do. To well, my children a, all well, the time. Yeah, that would make sense. Makes sense. And that's why <laughs> they're so great. Disappointing me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> weekly <laughs> poll. Okay, so we I posted a weekly poll uh primarily because of something that Kevin and I did on Sunday, which was we tuned into a Vero stream of Zack Snyder uh, doing an audio commentary track for his ultimate edition of Batman versus Superman. Uh, it's something he'd never done before. He wanted to do it live in the moment. Kevin was freaking out, posting shots of some of his favorite scenes from the movie with Snyder doing commentary on it. So I wanted to put in there what movie has the best director's cut. And uh, it's clear that my I have uh, some people who follow me on social media due to the Snyder Cut book that I'm working on. And they they definitely got at this poll because uh, Batman versus Superman uh, earned 81% of our vote. And so I think it skewed a little bit in that direction. But the other options were Blade Runner yeah. and Apocalypse Now. And then I got a lot of shit for not putting Lord of the Rings so legitimately, I had no clue that, that there are longer versions of the Lord of the Rings movies. Dude, like, those, what, those oh. extended cuts are amazing. amazing. Why? Why are they that much better? Why? Well, What's you don't even like them? the original film. So, like, it's an impossible to try to have this conversation I with you. I don't. They're eternal. Yeah. I, Dude, Kevin, I come remember. on. Those are good. So I bought all three of the extended cuts and I watched all the, I watched all three of them in one weekend. It was like 16 hours or something. I can't, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was glorious and they're, they're incredible, (laughs) but just, no, it's amazing. It's an amazing trilogy. Um, but Sean, real quick, I just wanted to mention something about the Snyder thing. I thought that was such a cool experience and, uh, you and I were both on it. It was very special, like Snyder on Vero, uh, video live and live commentating his, Batman vs Superman R-rated cut Ultimate Edition, uh, which was just unbelievable. Deborah Snyder showed up at one point in the background, talked. But for me, and I mentioned this in my post about technology, to have my phone in my hand with Snyder live while on my television is the warehouse scene happening while I'm listening to Zack Snyder explain the scene to me in my AirPods while the scene's playing out on my television was just peak geek geeking out like i was bre- i was geeking out beyond belief i remember when i was in living uh many years ago in a townhouse with some roommates watchmen came out on special edition it was the, i got the blue dr manhattan watchmen blu-ray uh and on the blu-ray i had never seen this before snyder walks out in between the screen and talks to you about the movie like in visual form it was unbelievable cool. um, if you so guys could me, have any director do that? Because I thought that was really cool. I didn't watch it with you guys, but I thought it was really cool that Zack Snyder did it. If you guys could have any director do it for any movie, like realistically, like who, like someone who's alive who could do it, who would you like to see do it? Um, I mean, Fincher. I want Fincher to do um, – I guess I'd want him to do seven. I'd want Fincher to do seven. That's a good one. That's a really good one. 
Jake, you would have Kevin. some amazing stories. Yeah, I'd like to see Spielberg do Jurassic Park. I think I would do. So Tarantino doesn't do commentary tracks. I remember like when I was going through a phase where I was obsessed with buying everything his name was on. Like even I would buy the movie Hero because it was Quentin Tarantino presents Hero with Jet Li. There was a commentary that Quentin did on Hostel 1 or 2 with Eli Roth. And then Quentin also did a commentary on True Romance, both films he didn't direct. So I've never heard a commentary track from Quentin Tarantino on Dogs or Pulp Fiction. I probably would do Pulp. Like I would. But can he? It. Do you think he could focus long enough to to do an? Because I feel like the, like yeah. he would instantly start talking about like like the opening scene, and then yeah. would just go off on ten thousand and never actually talk about. Because I thought about Tarantino, but I was like, I don't know how good of like an audio commentator he would be because I don't know if you could get him to focus on his movie for two and a half hours. You know what I mean? He, he was good. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean, but he was really good on the true romance commentary. If anybody out there uh, hasn't heard his commentary on true romance, it is amazing. Uh, it is, it, it, it's very interesting to hear him talk about it. Cause again, it's a film he did not direct that he gave to Tony Scott and, you know, ended up doing reservoir dogs and Pulp Fiction. So it's a very interesting concept to hear a guy who wrote a movie that didn't direct it talk about the film it almost was like an outer body thing i think for him uh but tarantino on pulp fiction would probably be my ultimate no question all right let's throw it to an actual director uh a director that we were able to get some time with this week uh and her name is debs patterson she again like i said at the top of the show uh directed a documentary that's called the skywalker legacy and it's on the blu-ray dvd for uh the new rise of skywalker film which again i, I think some people have been able to pick up it has uh, amazing access to the Lucasfilm archives. It has a ton of uh, really great footage from uh, the making of The Rise of Skywalker from J.J.'s film, including Carrie Fisher's, uh, what's supposed to be the first scene that they're shooting that would have included Carrie Fisher and a lot of other really great insight. Uh, it was great for Debs to sit down and talk to us. And I think as we got deeper into the production of her film and her thought process, she really talked about how documentaries come together and the amazing legacy that Star Wars has in general with its fans and with its films. So without further ado, I'm going to throw it to the Real Blend interview uh, with Debs Patterson on behalf of Star Wars. Uh, Debs, one thing I noticed watching the documentary was just how much Star Wars pays attention to its own legacy and how much it honors it. And I'm wondering if there's any other film series that you can actually compare uh, that pays as much attention to the fact that it has a legacy uh, as large as Star Wars does. Oh, man, that's a curveball. Seriously. <laughs> the, um, I'm going to swerve that in the first instance by like the... I was thinking about that. Somebody asked me the other day, like, why, what is it about Star Wars that makes it so special? And that, and that thing, that kind of, whatever is that umbilical cord that goes throughout of like always being connected back to the beginning of it or the source of it or whatever is definitely part of that, isn't it? Like it was, you know, in the, during the filming, at the beginning, at the beginning of the whole thing, one of the the one thing that Kathy Kennedy said that she wanted this thing to contemplate was, you know, why is it that this thing has this, you know, that Star Wars has this singular place in people's kind of minds and hearts and in cinematic history, like, you know, it, like why is it the only sort of Western cinema myth? And the um, so maybe that answers the question. Maybe there is another one and that's fine. I don't have to think of one on the spot. Well, the only one I was sort of close to is Bond, but 
you know, just because it's been around as long. Yeah, okay. I don't see the same passion, though, yeah. that you do for something like Star Wars. Do you? I don't, yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm, there's definitely passionate fans with that, but it's reinvented. Has it reinvented itself more times? Uh, well, probably, sure. Every time they recast the lead. And it definitely has more of a tongue-in-cheek sort of... It doesn't... It, 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 it's self not that Star Wars isn't self-aware, but it's self-aware in a way that Star Wars it, like it doesn't it doesn't believe its own myth. It's kind of it's self-aware about its own myth. Like right. there's something about the Star Wars thing that is sort of true, and and that's part of the amazingness of it. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, no, that's fair. Bond is fair. I absolutely love watching the documentary because I love seeing the different behind the scenes moments. The quicksand moment was mind blowing. Just the footage of them <laughs> sliding down to that lower level was so cool. Uh, and those are the types of scenes that I just I love watching documentaries because it gives an appreciation for all those amazing people behind the scenes. It sheds a light on those particular people. Uh, I was curious for you. What was the the scene that you were there to see on set be filmed that was the most different in the final product. Meaning like the way it looked the day you shot the documentary versus the way the movie turned out, not in a good or a bad way, just something that was so different from what you remember seeing filmed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, to your, to your starting point, that was if, if the one thing that Kathy said at the beginning was it needs to contemplate the why of Star Wars or what it is about this thing. Um, the thing that JJ said at the beginning is that he wanted the crew to be celebrated. Yes. He didn't just want the doc to be about the famous people. And the um, and so we were we worked incredibly hard to try and follow enough of those stories and get. I mean, just the 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 amount of cool shit that was going on every single day in every single department. It was it was eye popping. I'm trying to think about that, like the. Um, I, I mean, because I'm, I am, I'm also a filmmaker, so part of me was like getting off on. <laughs> I see how that's going to work, and I see where that's going to go. I mean, the in some ways, the thing that I was most looking forward to seeing was how uh, how Exegol would extrapolate up from you know the details that there were, because yeah. obviously it was this massive, massive scale, right? So like there were, you know, you get you get these um, huge huge things that were just going to be tiny details of the final set when you saw it on screen. So I was I was definitely looking forward to seeing that and that was something that you couldn't see a lot of on the set. Yeah, I mean, the throne was there, obviously, but you couldn't see a lot beyond that. So that was cool. The battle and maybe a little bit the space battle as well, but the, um, you know, the final, the, the sort of final showdown battle. But the, I mean, like in, in Cardington studio, you know, that, you know, like the huge side of the Star Destroyer in Cardington. Yes. Like, that was freaking epic, man. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, and to your point, cause I, this is not really a question, this is more of a statement. I was watching the documentary, and what I loved about the filmmaking aspect of it was giving people the idea of the animatronics. Like, the, the sequence when that, that gigantic slithering animal with all the different people are inside <laughs> of it, or, like, those details in the creature's eyes that, that were just used in the film from behind as the ship flies over. Like, what an amazing way to shed light on these important animators and everybody behind the scenes. So thank you. That was very appreciated from a film, a filmmaking per fan. You know what I mean? It was great. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. It was like, it, it was amazing. It was amazing to see. And the, yeah, dude, kudos to those guys. It's ridiculous. 
Uh, you know, aside from all the amazing footage that you shot on Rise of Skywalker, you also bring in a lot of unbelievable archival footage from the original films. And I'm curious, like, what your access to that archival footage is. Does Lucasfilm pretty much just, like, open the vault and say, like, go nuts, have fun? Or are you provided, like, very specific clips where they go, like, here's what we'll give you, like, play with these? Well, no, it was, um, it sort of started off, because there's, like, 350 hours of archive from the 70s and 80s. Wow. So it started off with them saying, you know, very logically, you know, just just tell us what you're looking for, and um, you know, we'll get our we'll get our guys searching. But it was like a it was kind of a funny deal where, you know, we had a thousand hours of stuff that we shot on Rise of Skywalker, and um, and and we had not very long of a time to edit the doc, right? We had to deliver the documentary at the same time as the movie was delivered. Oh, wow. So, really? Yeah, no. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like, like three and a half months or something. Um, by the time that we started our editing process, which is obviously much later than they started their editing process, but we had about three and a half months to do it. So in the end, it just made much more sense for while the editors were getting up to speed, we had two incredibly talented editors working on this, uh, Rebecca Valente and Carl Jordan. Um, so while they were getting up to speed with the, um, you know, the thousand hours that we'd shot, I just, I sat and watched, uh, 350 hours of the of the archive material like they made it available through the avid which was amazing like it was amazing and they've just completely rescanned everything oh. so a lot of it isn't properly logged yet and that's why it looks so good like it looks amazing yeah um you know we didn't do anything to that beyond grade it in the um, in our post process like the this the new scans are just phenomenal and the um, and i think they found a lot of stuff and resynced it like sky sounds is um they, you know, they went through all their reels. They resynced it with all the, you know, the Super 16 reels that there were from the original, um, uh, from the original behind the scenes stuff. I mean, there is such incredible material in there. So, you know, it was, it was something like, you, without doing that, you know, where the bit um, where Rosemary and oh, I'm going to forget his name, Martin, I think it is. I hope it is. Um, uh, in uh, in the droid workshop in Babu Frick's workshop, mm-hmm. workshop and they suddenly start talking about Greebles, yeah. right? Right. I, the only reason that I knew that there was a bit in the desert where the where that guy's talking about Greebles is because of having watched it through. Like, there's that's not logged anywhere. Do you know what I mean? You just right, it was right. little moments like that. I'm like, oh, I'm pretty sure we shot that, and then you know, so that was that was you know slightly chaotic fun, but real fun of kind of watching the archive thinking about ah oh, i remember people doing something like that or i remember i remember um, her putting the gloop on the snake's teeth in the cave and then there's phil tibbetts doing you know in the, I, mean, I love that match cut that was so cool it's yeah. so cool isn't it it's so <laughs> yeah cool. i was geeking out because to me that's kind of what the documentary became and this is you know the idea of what was done in 77 yeah is not that much different than what's being done now. Right. We just have a little extra tools in the toolbox with the CGI. But to me, that's what the documentary does, is it shows you that the old school style of filmmaking, that 35 millimeter, just that practical cameras on set, that's what still works. And this, There's a reason why it still works. Right, right. And, the, and this wasn't like a thesis that we went into... 
the doc trying to prove like this was just like well hang on it was sort of everybody was talking a lot of times you know or it came up a lot of times in the stuff that we were filming like oh so we went back and looked at the process that they used to do or well this is still the same like with Chewie's you know Chewie's whole deal is still hair hand stitched into the you know yeah yeah sure C3PO that that mask shot was so cool the one from the wide shot out that was awesome (laughs) it's not broken right why try to fix it well this is it and so and you know and so then like watching the archive again you kind of like it really is the same thing apart from like you say you know it's like at the same time they're kind of staying tied in a lot of ways to the original techniques and and having to push it forward you know, every time it's got to be pushed forward again. And there was stuff that they did on this that, you know, they were inventing it as they went along in a kind of, holy cow, I hope you know what you're doing sort of a way. I mean, like Roger Guyette and his team going, I'm pretty sure we can pull this off. I don't, I'm pretty (laughs) sure, you know? But that feels like it's always been the the DNA. I mean, that is partly what's amazing about this stuff, isn't it? Like, yes, the, the mythological, you know, the sort of fairy tale big hearted side of it you know and deep meaning side of it but also the kind of you know these practical techniques matched with the most insane technological advance every single time I mean I'll tell you what there's a piece of footage from the archive that was gutted that we didn't manage to get in uh, which is the um, oh no I'm going to forget his name who was the SFX guy on the original movie? Ha, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test you now. Who was the F- SFX guy in the original movies? Gosh, I'm going to Neil Scanlon, but Scanlon's doing wait, stuff wait, wait, on the wait, recent um, stuff. Wait, wait, wait. The, the guy who did, um, uh, didn't he just do Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Is it Dykstra? No. no, no. Oh, who, uh, oh, John Dykstra? No, it's a British guy. It's a British guy. He's got dark hair and a beard. <laughs> Um, um, his, uh, hold on, I'll look it up real fast. While okay, we're no, 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 look it up. So, but, but he's there's a piece of Dykstra was on Star Wars, though, right? I'm, I'm I am right about that. He was a special effects artist on on Star Wars. John Dykstra. That's well, maybe it's maybe I'm laughing at you. Maybe you're right. I mean, like <laughs> you, you literally might be right. Because the only reason I know that name is because we inter- we had Quentin Tarantino on our show recently for. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and he talked about John Dykstra being on Hollywood and making him do a full-blown practical one-shot where when they, when Pitt drives to the drive-in yeah, yeah, at yeah. the beginning, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they go over the theater. Those are real, like, miniature cars no, that they set out. No, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's the wrong guy. I don't know. I'm still digging. It's gonna John take me Dykstra. I'm just it. looking for a photo. Yeah, unfortunately, when you go to IMDb for the visual effects department of Star Wars, there are yeah, no, more names no, I just, than a small I just, There are a lot of names. <laughs> Anywho, while you're digging that up, I was very curious because I loved a scene that occurred relatively early that it kind of woke me up to the fact that, oh, this is a documentary about, about the filmmaking process. Was Harrison Ford in an archival shot kind of <laughs> waving off the camera of like, don't shoot this, you know? Right, and it's right. really funny that with Jake and Kevin as co-hosts, we run into this often. Kevin always wants to know how things are done. Jake would rather not know how things are done. And I'm curious, like, what was your take on that? And was there any sort of pushback from the people as you filmed them filming the process? You know, because a lot of times that shows the imperfections, you know, or it, I love it's it. a peek behind the curtain <laughs> that maybe some film fans don't necessarily want. What was the attitude uh, from that on the set? This is, I mean, there was like a mantra from the beginning, partly out of the first conversation with JJ and partly also getting a sense pretty quickly, I don't know, what would be important to him. 
But also, like, for me as a fan, like, I, I don't want something that... I don't want to see any underwear, do you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to... Mm. I, I don't want I don't want the bubble to get burst. I want to get as close as possible to the magic of it without spoiling the magic of it. So that was like a mantra. That was basically the mantra all the way through, like how close can we get to this without ruining it? Um and that and that was the that was the hope, uh, basically with the doc. Yeah, and, and I think you do a great job with it because, like, I, I'm interested in it. But it, but to me, the things you have in your documentary enhance the experience for me. Uh, okay. it enhances the work that goes into it. Now, that's just the way I, I love that kind of footage. But um, I guess my question would be: I noticed uh, as we got closer to slates or um, the cameras, there was Trixie written on the on the film as the as the as the fake title being used as the movie was shot um do you know the meaning behind that and and two uh what, what other fake names did you see oh used word. around the set i mean is the, well trixie trixie's easy it's got it's got nine in the middle it's got xi for nine in the middle oh, oh, that's, wow. really, that's really, really cool i i totally did so not. obvious we just went right over it <laughs> i will say this though in in, in our defense Nothing JJ does is easy to figure out. Like, no, no. Like, like he's always, you know what I mean. So like, I feel like he wouldn't make it that easy. He like double bluffed. What other him, fake right? names did you did you did you uh, did you notice ever being used? Uh, what other? I mean, no, but everything everything's codenamed. Everything like everything. So. There's nothing that isn't codenamed the whole time. <laughs> like, is JJ Abrams codenamed? JJ Abrams is not. Yeah, no. The um, but all of the yeah, the cast have codes. The characters have codes. The locations have codes. <laughs> so like, I mean, it's it's impressive. So you're remembering like three, ver- especially with cast, you're remembering three versions of everything um, as well. Yeah. That's but crazy. it's what is one crazy code name you can tell us without I mean, you don't have to give us like specifics if you don't want to. We're just we're just nerds about that. Yeah, kind of no, 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 I get it. I'm also I don't want to get shot. <laughs> <laughs> they train you well on this. We stuff. hear that a lot when it comes to <laughs> Disney uh, Disney productions. Yeah, <laughs> um, if I think of one that definitely couldn't be problematic. Uh, I'll say. Right, let <laughs> okay. me think. All right, we'll come back to okay. that. Um, you do an amazing job of, of really, in, in just two hours, not just two hours, like telling the entire arc that is the rise of Skywalker while also flashing back to the legacy before. But um, there were a couple of big, like, pre production. Uh, stories that uh, obviously didn't make it into the documentary. One of the big ones being um, that Colin Trevor- Trevorrow, uh, Trevorrow, sorry, was uh, going to be on the project and then was replaced by J.J. Yeah, Abrams. Right. Was that ever an option to include that storyline in the documentary, or does Disney sort of say, "Yeah, we don't really want to talk about that"? No, it was. I mean, it, there definitely wasn't a mandate from either Disney or Kathy or J.J. or anybody like you must talk about this. You mustn't talk about that. I don't think I'm lying to say that. There were things that they wanted to cover, for sure. Like Carrie, obviously. And, you know, they yeah. wanted to know that we would be able to do that in a um, in a way that kind of worked. Um, but the... Um, uh, it's, it, it's to the point of spoiling the magic kind of thing. Like, how do you, how do you start a story of this kind of movie with a load of politics that, you know, most fans don't really care about like the, the you know and it's which isn't to say that there isn't a um 
that that isn't part of the story but man there's so many parts of the story of this thing that we couldn't fit into two hours so it was tough to find the beginning I will say that it was tough to find the right way into the um to this one you know because it's it's the last of three movies and it's the last of nine movies and you know it was um yeah there was kind of the, the sort of complicated narrative about the beginning and how much you need to know so yeah it kind of we played around with a few different things um uh trying to find the right way in and then it ultimately it was just like screw it man let's just go day one bosh off we go it you works know? well that's and exactly where i was going to go with the next sort of follow-up is that right I, I always love talking to documentary filmmakers because i don't think people really process the, the 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 way into the story is so completely different than you know having a script that your point A to point B uh, oh method. Word. Instead, you start with so much you know, and you and you can chisel <laughs> it down to five or six avenues that you could pursue, and you have the footage to almost back it up. I was curious what what were some other ones that you were sort of entertaining? Oh of, man. Like, there was so many, and the and the and the um, serious kudos to documentary people. Like I, I haven't done a documentary before, and you kind of, I was like, oh yeah, no, the difficult things were uh, with drama, obviously, because you got to get the whole thing up on its feet. You got to get everyone to come with you. You got to get the money. You got to blah blah blah. No, no, <laughs> like documentary is <laughs> way harder. Like way harder. Those cats yeah. are ninjas. Seriously, because <laughs> um, you have to. You well, like, you had an ending. To- think. Think of the ones that don't have an ending. Oh, you don't. Know? I can't. That work I don't. their way like, through and hope that there's a resolution provided. <laughs> that always <laughs> that makes me petrified thinking about every doc subject. It's just like, what if you yeah. don't know what your ending is? I know. I know. Like, what if it never happens? And what if you anyway? Right. Yeah, no, seriously. And they and they like edit their movie and write the scripts at the same time. I mean, I'm sure people are a bit more orderly than that sometimes, but and there's, I'm impressed. Um, but yeah, no, if we did, if we, so if we were, um, struggling for a minute to find the right way in, we had like seven different endings that we could do. That was for sure. Um, <laughs> it was, um, that was a tough one to find. The, the key, the thing that opened up the beginning was finding that, those, uh, tourists by the fence. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah, that yeah. was, it was literally just, that was great. It's, they're so cool, aren't they? They're so cool. <laughs> by the way, is, yeah. is there that for the, for the new productions now? Or is it so guarded that no one yeah, even knows where to go? Yeah, not really. Like no. the, um, yeah, no, I think you would be chased off long before anything <laughs> like that. I, I, one of the things that I regret not filming actually was the security guys on the movie because they were like, they were brilliant characters anyway. Um, but the, yeah, no, that that would have been a fascinating storyline that we just, it was, you know, it was one too many things. A sequel, do another one. I'm, yeah, yes, right. yes. <laughs> I'm really, I'm really curious about your day to day in regards to the filming. So, okay, yeah, right, right. looking at, uh, for example, there's a great moment in the documentary where we go to footage of JJ as he's announcing to the crew, "This is the first time we're going to shoot a scene with Princess Leia uh, or General Leia in that particular sense." And uh, that scene was so powerful to see JJ take that mic and kind of go up there and say that. And you see, I think he actually offers Billy mm-hmm. Lord the mic for a second, and she says, "No, I'm okay." Um, so. How did your day-to-day work? Did you know in advance 
what things were being filmed and you were going to go in and did you have, did you have like an idea of what days you were shooting, what footage you wanted to get? Like, did you know JJ was going to give that speech or you just happened to pick that up on the camera? How much of that stuff is pre-planned? Did you know going in? I think I, I think on that particular occasion I'd asked him, are you going to say something? And, uh, he said, probably. So cool. there was, that was a kind of, but you, I didn't know when particularly it was going to happen, but that's where, um, so the, the team that we had, um, to film, I was, um, I don't normally operate, but it realized very, very quickly, like documentary, you can like, I don't really know how directors stand by a camera and like whisper direction. <laughs> I was watching JJ <laughs> in your documentary doing that. I couldn't believe how close JJ was to Daisy in that, in that scene where she looks into the camera. Right? I couldn't believe he was right there. Yeah. I've never seen, normally they're like in video village or they're back behind. I don't know. I've never seen that, but that was yeah, so cool. He's, he's not a video village guy. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's he's right up in there with them. Um, the, uh, yeah, no, well, this is it. This is it. It was, um, uh, I had so there were three. I, we had three cameras, two incredibly talented um, uh, other DPs, who um, we kind of, uh, you know, I would sort of say, can you take this area? Can you take that area? And sort of figured out pretty quick who would have a natural inclination towards what kind of stuff. Um, so Chin Okoronkro, who was um, one of our. Um, camera operators she had this amazing ability of making friends with literally everybody like everybody mm-hmm. so um, anybody in the workshops that like the so the a lot of the show and tells wouldn't be scheduled um, uh, yeah. so the only way that you know is if somebody in the department tells you that's going to happen so like the a lot you know the stuff with Ian um, uh um, his, uh, you know, the Empress uh, show and tells when they knew about because of Chin, the Warwick Davis stuff when they knew about because of Chin, you know, lots of lots wow. of stuff like that. That was she was amazing, and Will and I would be more on set with the unit by and large, you know, um, as a generalization. And Will Mitchell, who's the other one, he like he's um, uh, he was shooting with the Venice. He was shooting handheld with the Venice a lot of the time, which is. No mean feat, my friend. Um, the- well, I'll tell you right now, I jumped off my couch every single time I saw a 35 millimeter film camera. It was just like seeing Dan Mendel work. Just right. Like an absolute genius. But uh, Jake, go ahead, buddy. No, Sorry. No, uh, you know, I love documentaries about movies that make me go back and, and look at a movie differently. And one of the things I now um, love seeing or love thinking about is sort of the tribute to John Williams. Um, because John Williams oh, is yes. uh, a genius and I think arguably like maybe the greatest composer that's ever lived and the way that they pay tribute to him in this movie I thought was brilliant and, and I'm so glad that you guys sort of brought that <laughs> to life and I'm curious as to what that moment was like to be a part of um, and then were there like other Easter eggs that uh, maybe didn't even make it into the documentary that you're aware of that, um, that, that, that you can think about? I think we tried to get most of the most of the Easter eggs we were aware of we tried to get in um I don't think there were any that didn't make it. Let me think about that. But the John Williams thing was incredible. And, and I'd been tracking that for like, um, I don't know, some seven months or something. Like, you know, because Rosemary uh, Brandenburg, who I love, had like talked us through all of the different... Uh, we do have somewhere on film, we have all 51. She talked us through all 51 of the um, of the 
um, uh, tributes that they did. Release that. Yeah. I know, oh, I know, amazing. I know, I know. We need to get Lucasfilm onto it. I, I emailed her the other day actually to say, look, you have to, you have to do a full list. Like the internet would love you for doing a full list. The, oh, yeah. um, uh, that'd be awesome. The, um, so, but yeah, so that was during the shoot. And then obviously because John is, um, you know, Mr. Williams is uh, not traveling so much these days. I mean, he's still incredible. I, I got to tell you, like being in the room, like getting to be in the recording studio while they were, oh, you know, oh, laying oh. that stuff down. I can't, I literally, I won't forget that ever for the rest of my life, ever, ever. It was amazing. And you know, one of those things where you're like, I don't know why I get to be in this room, but like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, That's amazing. I mean, yeah, it was ridiculous. So, so, they, so basically, they'd done all of the, they'd made all the tributes during the shoot and then shipped them over to LA and, so, and then re, re, recreated the little, um, a bar area in the back lot of Bad Robot. So basically that was happening, that happened as a little piece during the edit. Um, and it was, so, again, it was all so secretive. Um, but I like, I had my people by that point to say when, uh, you know, when it was going to be happening. So Major was there to film it. And then afterwards, JJ was like, I don't know how you knew that was happening, but thank you so much for getting it. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Debs, are you in the movie? Am I in the movie? No. Yeah. No, the, I, I have a. I I voiced an alien in the space battle, but then it got. I they they re-edited that section. The um. So I'm somewhere on the cutting room floor. Me and Chris Terrio <laughs> are two two of the kind of horse aliens. That's closer than the rest of us are ever going to get to being in Star Wars. <laughs> uh, do we have time to go through one more question each? Do you have time? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. sure. Yeah, you know what? Okay, um, I will wrap uh, my portion up with this one, um, which is hacky, but still, I want to know, um. This is as much of a capsule, you know, to the filming of, of episode nine as it is to the legacy as a whole. And you had such great access to the cast and the people responsible for it. And if you could pick one other Star Wars film from the entire series that you could have lived on and captured the insights of everybody involved, which one would you choose? I think Empire. I think it would have to be Empire. But like yeah, from yeah. the beginning, like when Lee Brackett was working on it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Like, I would have loved to watch her process with dialogue and that kind of stuff. And also to hear what would have happened if she hadn't passed. But the, um, but the, I mean, Empire, yeah, Empire would have been amazing. Like the, I mean, the footage from the snow, when they're shooting the snow, looked absolutely right. mental. Right, and then right. Cloud City, yeah, no, no, no. Is, yeah, Empire would be the one. Billy D in his prime. Seriously, yes. I mean, that guy's amazing. He's amazing. <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. Good answer. Good answer. Yeah. Yeah, that was incredible. Uh, all right, so I, I'm curious. I mean, obviously, you're on set. I was curious what your famous, your favorite moment was to operate. Uh, what cam? The, you were on the camera. You were operating it. It's all you in that moment. Like, what, is, what was your favorite scene to have shot? Do you know? What? Ironically, I think. I mean, apart from obviously the. Um uh, Bakersfield. I'll tell you that the code name for that was Bakersfield, where uh, the homestead, right at the very end. Um, oh, oh, yeah, cool. no. That when that, I mean, it was nice, nice comeback. Yeah, with that full mm. <laughs> we got it. Wow, that was really like in tune <laughs> with the um, because you literally you're there, and not everything's for real. You know, like the homestead is there for real. The sunset is there for real. Like the it's so weird because you know that this is the end of the movie and then this massive rainbow comes out 
And then, you know, the, it's, we're about to wrap in Jordan, like shooting that stuff. Everybody's tired and they know that the work's been good and the, and the emotions are high. Like, that was amazing. But I think my favorite thing to shoot was the, um, ironically, it was just a little, for the flashback. You know, the flashback fight that happens between Luke, Luke and Leia. Yeah. Oh, yes. in the jungle, which oh, was it just Billy, looks, Lil, with Billy Lord. It, oh. oh my word, it looked amazing. It looked amazing. Wait, that was you operating that moment. I I was watching I was watching that on my couch with my wife and I was like, this is an amazing shot of a behind the scenes shot. Like, it was like a legitimately cool shot. <laughs> is that the one with JJ silhouetted in the middle? Uh, yeah, no, that's, yes. that's me operating that one. And yeah. they all have the, they all have the, uh, I love that he has them have practical savers on set. Totally. I just love that he does that. Well, this is so the thing cool. that you like, you're watching it and it's the same. You like, C3PO is like just walking around and there's C3PO. And what the <laughs> fuck? Like that, excuse me, that doesn't get old ever. Like ever. <laughs> Speaking of things that don't get old and, and you've kind of already answered this, but I'm going to ask for sort of a, another answer there. We, we are all fortunate enough on this podcast to have moments where, um, we'll, we'll, we'll get to interview someone or we'll be on set and we'll look at each other and just go like, how, how are we here? Like, how, how is this yeah. a thing where our life exists? <laughs> I know you mentioned sort of having that sensation, um, around John Williams, but what was another moment in your experience with this documentary where you kind of just paused and looked around and just sort of went like, how is this my life? Like, how, how am I, how am I bearing witness to this? Um, on the Falcon, I got to go in the Millennium oh. Falcon. Oh, I just got chills. I just got chills. Yes. Yes. Wait, so wait, which yeah. chair did you sit in? I sat, well, we sat, I sat in the, I sat in both seats in the cockpit, oh, like both the fun things. And then in the, I sat at the chessboard, you oh. know, like, <laughs> and you're like, oh. uh, what? <laughs> what do yeah. they have there for the pieces? Is anything there? Is it all digital? I know, it's so disappointing. It's so disappointing. You're like looking for the thing to turn it on. <laughs> <laughs> so but cool. like sitting there and it's a 360 set. That part of it is a 360 deal. Like. Everywhere you look is the Falcon. Like you don't lose it anywhere. It's amazing. I'll tell you right now that when the, when the I told you this earlier, but when people were coming down the shoot of that quicksand, that was my favorite footage I've seen in a documentary <laughs> in a long time. I I to be honest with you, I was always wondering how they did that, and I thought it was like CG. I didn't know how they pulled that yeah, off no. or how they went underneath and came back up. That was one of the coolest reveals I've ever had about a special effect. Ah, ever, it was wicked. so cool. That's so wicked. cool. So thank you for yeah, that. I know. Wicked. We joke all the time that, you know, if you're at a, a party and everybody's, you know, trading war stories, you kind of sit back and you have one in your back pocket of just like, well, if I pull <laughs> this one out, like this is going to be the be all and all. And Dev just dropped one on us. That was the be all and end all. <laughs> like, I sat everywhere on the Falcon. What have you guys done with your lives? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yes, so that's crazy. <laughs> well, so the documentary is called The Skywalker Legacy, and obviously you guys can find it in the bonus features for uh, the new Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. Debs, thank you so much for taking the time oh, to pleasure. join the Real Blend podcast. We really appreciate yeah, it. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Real pleasure. Thank you very All much. All right, take care. Bye. We have to thank uh, Disney and Lucasfilm for getting Debs on the show and uh, definitely go out and grab a copy of The Rise of Skywalker. Uh, for the movie, obviously you want to add it to your collection, but also for that documentary. It's a terrific uh, special feature. All right, news for this week. So the Golden Globes uh, are reacting to everything that's going on in the uh, coronavirus community, unfortunately, and as all of these things are affecting the way that movies get released, the Golden Globes are changing their eligibility rules. Um 
the story made it sound as if the filmmakers who were putting things out were more concerned about their Globes eligibility than I think people actually are. Uh, but there was a stipulation, obviously, for a film to qualify for a Golden Globe at the end of the year that had to play in theaters. The Globes, uh, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which gives out the Golden Globes, is going to relax that stature. Uh, and, and they'll basically say that you can do something on a paid streaming service or uh, a cable streaming service. It doesn't necessarily have to run in a theater in order for it to qualify. So Trolls World Tour, you're still in the game. Uh, you'll be able to get that animated feature Golden Globe nomination. Don't worry about it, Universal. You didn't ruin that. I guess my bigger question is going to be, is this now a precedent that's being set for some of the bigger award shows if this thing continues? Because the next point we're going to get to is the fact that new movies might not be coming for a really long time. And is the Globes just setting a bar for what we think other groups like the Academy uh, maybe the Broadcast Film Critics Association, of which we are members, that we're going to have to sort of pursue this other type thing, that a movie doesn't have to play in theaters to be eligible for an award. I I find it interesting because, I, listen, right now in this particular time period, uh, it makes sense. And uh, I feel like with, with the pandemic that we're involved in now with the coronavirus, that this is really the only way for films to be eligible in regards to this time period that they can't play in movies. So for me, I don't think films that don't play theatrically should be up for Academy Awards. Um, just because I, I, I think the theatrical experience is, is part of that uh, factor. But with the time we're in now, I have no problem with it. Clearly, there's no other way. Uh, but next year, so yes, Oscars, Globes, that's totally fine for 2021 award shows. 2020 is is a different year. It's not normal. Um, so next year, uh, you know, when we're out of all this and we're back to normal movies, that's when I think it should go back to the regular eligibility. I do not think that that should stand. Personally. So wait, so I, I, I'm not trying to be a smart ass. I'm genuinely sort of confused. So at this point, what you're saying is um, in order like a movie – no longer has to play in theaters. It could just go straight to Netflix and be considered, uh, you know, up for contention. So in that case, I ask you, what's the difference between something like that um, versus a movie that like HBO, like the new Hugh Jackman movie that's coming to HBO? Right. You're getting into Emmy territory here. Oh, interesting. I see what you're saying. Uh, no, I think they have specific parameters on what streaming services that it has to play on. I don't think it's a Netflix amazon type thing because i think what like kevin said that would make it eligible for emmys but like trolls world tour is going to like itunes and places where you have to pay for it is it a vod so, so like in theory if like black widow went yeah. to video on demand then that could right. be up for as a movie but if it Correct. went to disney plus it would not be up for it. See, no, I, I think, I, I again, I know exactly what jake's saying i think the eligibility means that it's a film that was made for theaters that was then put on VOD. I don't. I, I haven't read the fine print on this. Okay, but then see that's weird too because that that Hugh Jackman movie was made for theaters and then HBO just bought it. Well, yeah. that's different. But HBO bought it. Wait, they bought it due to the coronavirus? No, they they bought it after okay. uh, the Toronto Film Festival. So that's different. Oh. So basically, in that case, the movie was purchased by HBO. But it was it was wait. So you're saying that that movie in particular is going to HBO only? It's right? Yeah, there's a new um, uh, Hugh Jackman, Allison Janney, um, a Ray Romano movie, right? That was made with the intention of I'm assuming going to theaters. And right. after I, sure. I want to say maybe it was Sundance, but I want to say it was Toronto. It was um, in Toronto. It, yeah. It it 
HBO, you know, where, where it was looking for a studio for someone to buy it. HBO just happened to be the one to buy it. And now they're putting it out as that, this HBO original film. But that's an was, Emmy's film. That's an Emmy. So, okay, so let me clarify my point. So if, okay, for example, right now in the time period that we're in, Trolls, uh, uh, films like that that are going to VOD that were originally slated for theatrical releases, that is where I think this applies to. I don't think hold it applies on. to a movie that was already going to online, like or on HBO, and no, then now that on. makes it eligible. I have the clarification. It's right here. This is the term, pay-per-view. It's it's a instead of only considering a movie right. that was released in theaters or made available on pay per view cable or pay per view digital delivery. So not HBO, so not, not HBO, not even Netflix, right. not a streaming service. It's literally something where you're paying per view. But then it goes on to say uh, is not a made available in theaters in the greater Los Angeles area for a minimum seven days beginning before December 31st. So they're really the window right now where they're only giving you this leeway is something between March 15th and April 30th. Now that could change. We're seeing all sure. of these regulations uh, be massaged and, and, and altered as we get further and further into this. But it's interesting that this is one of the first bodies that's implementing something like this. But going forward, this, this should not be a norm. This, this, this is a, this is a temporary moment yeah. thing that makes perfect sense. Uh, but I think I still feel and I will always feel that a movie should not be considered to be for an Academy Award unless it has a theatrical run in some way, shape or form. Uh, if and if it goes directly to like an HBO like Jake's talking about, that's an Emmys uh, movie, not a yeah. Oscars film. But I mean, Jake, your point's interesting because the movie was made theatrically. But once HBO buys it and they create a release for their platform, the movie's no longer a theatrical film. Trolls was a theatrical film that just happened to move to VOD because of circumstances. Therefore, I think that makes sense because – but yeah, a movie like that, which was already slated for HBO – would not even but factor. Let's into this. be honest. If you buy the Hollywood Foreign Press a knife and a nice enough watch, they'll give you a Golden Globe. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. It's whoever throws the best party. All right. So one of the, some of these films that we thought were going to be coming to VOD uh, as a substitute instead of pushing way way back have just decided that they are going to wait for theatrical windows. And these are the latest films that were supposed to be coming out from Sony Pictures this summer. Three, well, uh, two of them were coming out this summer anyway. Morbius, starring Jared Leto, and the Ghostbusters reboot sequel continuation that Jason Reitman is doing. They have now moved until 2021 officially. So has Uncharted, the Mark Wahlberg, Tom Holland film based on the video game adaptation that uh, was still filming and was filming in Berlin. And I know uh, their production was deeply affected by uh, the coronavirus and the quarantines that were happening in, in Germany because of that. So they are not able to continue. So they've also pushed to 2021. Uh, Greyhound, a Tom Hanks film, has been delayed indefinitely uh, from June 12th that was supposed to come out. Sony is still keeping um, their September and October releases. One of them uh, in October they're calling an unti untitled Sony Marvel movie, which hasn't officially been announced as Venom 2, but I'm fairly certain, 100%, that that's Venom 2. And it'll be interesting to see if they move those dates off of there. But what do you guys think about yet another major studio uh, not holding the line uh, and not waiting to see if the situation clears anytime soon, but simply grabbing valuable real estate uh, in 2021. I feel like this is the um, release date equivalent of the Titanic. Right now, everyone's just looking for a lifeboat trying to get off. Um, yeah. At this point, I mean, you know, so much so that we're not 
even studios aren't even looking at well maybe maybe august or september or october of this year they're just going screw it let's just you know what let's just not worry about it um and let's and let's just push it to next year so they're gonna um, flush they're, the rest of the year i mean, I mean dude they just flushed they, this is the first isn't this the first instance of a studio like pushing just their entire slate like not movie per movie per movie remember remember how big of a deal like three weeks ago when bond moved it was like felt like a, yeah that, that feels like a year ago at and, this and point. now yes. like now we're at a point where like a day comes and like five <laughs> movies get pushed and we're like oh hey five like like the world i feel like our our world our world stopped when they moved bond because it was such this map and now like five movies got pushed yesterday including a tom hanks movie and we all just sort of went well yeah that's that's that that's it that's, that's you know, yeah, i mean but, but here's the here's the here's the transition are they going to push tenant well I mean, the tenant thing is it, 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 you're, that that's a sensitive subject, uh, Jake. Kevin so, can't uh, even talk uh, about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's, that, that's uh, why I, I wanted to, I wanted to sort of set the, the shot up for Kevin. <laughs> let, let me clear my mind of the thought process I was in before tenant because now I don't want to get too upset. But yeah, this particular situation has gotten very interesting. Um, one thing I've been questioning is why things are moving when they're moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean, last week we discussed. Uh, in the Heights, which what I believe was a late June release. Right. And they moved and it was three months from being released and they still moved the film. Yes. That, so that was, became a question of whether or not was the movie even done? Is this a post-production question? Are they editing the film and not able to edit it and get it out in time? So mm-hmm. then we were, we started to wonder like, that's a long time. Three months is a long time. Why can't we wait till April or May to see where we are and then do it? And then we had a great discussion about mar- marketing campaigns and all that kind of stuff. Now we're moving July movies, which is really worrisome for me. Like you're talking about a movie studio moving like massive films out of July and we're only at the end of March right now. Uh, And, you know, we obviously all hope this gets better sooner rather than later. But moving a movie out of July is concerning to me. Not not that they do they know something we don't know, but I, I just find that to be a very strange move. And I get it. I get the marketing aspect of it. But then you you have Warner Brothers. You move Wonder Woman right from uh, June to August. That's not staying in August, right? I mean, I, I feel like there's yeah. theaters won't probably open until maybe August, probably September. And I now with these July pushes, we're talking about four months of no releases, which is insane. Now, here's the interesting thing: Tenant Tenant's a very interesting question. But what about Top Gun? Top yeah. Gun's just sitting in June right now, right? It comes out in June. And Paramount hasn't moved yet. Now, Paramount has made some interesting moves already. They moved Lovebirds from a theatrical to a Netflix. Right. Right? Uh, they moved Quiet Place indefinitely. And they're, you know, so, and Bad Boys, uh, Bad Boys is Sony. So we're now dealing with Top Gun. Why is Top Gun sitting there? So I guess it's interesting to me because Top Gun. Well, because they have a Tom Cruise movie next summer. Right. But, yeah. if Top, yeah. but if Top Gun is sitting there in June and Sony is moving July 31st films like Morbius. Right. Why, why is Top Gun not moving? But you, you, you just have to maybe just assume that, that, Different studios are maybe holding out hope. Maybe that may, I mean, it, it will it probably be moved. Yeah, I really do. I honestly think Tenet and Top Gun are, are going to be moved, but they're probably taking it one by one going like, well, maybe we'll see. I mean, like what's honestly, what's at this point, what it, it's not like any of them are paying for TV spots or for any kind of promotion. Like what's, what's the harm in just kind of holding off and seeing what happens? This is going to be a stupid question. Um, and I'm just going to ask a hypothetically, let's say like a month from now, everything's back to normal, 
right. perfectly back to normal. We're all back to normal. Can these studios reverse their decision? So, for example, let's say April 20th rolls around and we're and everything is great. They have a vaccine. We have a vaccine. Right. You know, everything's everybody clear. can get it. Yes. Can can you move Wonder Woman back to June 5th? I think that I, movies that are finished um, can move Wonder Woman's in. definitely done. Because that remember, that got delayed already. Right. Initially. Right, right. So it feels like- Is Tenet done? Tenet's not done. There's no way Tenet's done. Because like I feel like, again, I'm saying that as an opinion, but I'm almost certain it's not done because I feel like no one's probably editing until the last minute. Some of these I guys really do work and right until yeah. like a yeah. day or two before it comes out. <laughs> didn't we hear that like, didn't Krasinski just finish A Quiet Place before we saw yeah, it? Yeah, same with yeah. Invisible Man. I saw Invisible Man two nights after Lee, Lee Winnell locked picture and, or locked the movie completely. It's crazy. And, and I remember, Jake, do you remember we, at the Tron Junket, uh, Joseph Kaczynski walked into the theater in the El Capitan and said, I just yeah. finished this movie and I just brought the hard drive yeah. here myself. <laughs> and like that, like, there's no one, no one's probably in VFX. Now, here's the thing. I can't imagine that kind of pressure, by the way. It's like a sidebar. Yeah. Like your junket starts in two days. Like this, this $200 million movie isn't done yet. But if you're, okay, so if you're Nolan and you're Tenet, so Tenet probably isn't, again, this is an opinion or, you know, I'm just guessing, but Tenet's probably in a very rigorous post-production process prior to all this happening. VFX, editing, ADR, all those things that you need to do in post-production. They can't do that now. Right. I mean, especially especially with the CDC guidelines and all the different stay at home aspects of it. You can't get people to come to studios and ADR dialogue for you. Can you? I think you can. No, not right now. Probably no. Not. Well, can you do it from home? I, I mean, how many people are able to work from home and do something like I that? I mean, but a movie yeah, of that magnitude, you think it's all in one spot in Nolan's house? There's no way. Oh, yeah. No, I feel like he's oh, such a perfectionist not. that he would want to control <laughs> yes. every. OK, I, I have a question for yeah. you. So let's let's say hypothetically, they push Tenet to December, November, December, okay. and it becomes their awards season movie. Okay. Like they they decide like okay, not going to be our big summer movie. It's going to be an awards season movie. And let's let's push it a step further and say one like, be, not necessarily not because it's not going to be good, but like because the competition is a little bit less. Let's say this is the year that Nolan wins his Oscar because oh he's not my. really competing against anything else. Would it bother you? that he won an Oscar in a year in which like everyone goes, yeah, but there really wasn't that much competition. No. That timing is interesting because, and I heard Sean's no, and I didn't mean to step over you, Sean, but um, I think that the timing of that is interesting. So if movie theaters pop back up, it, or when they pop up back up in like August, right? There's still a good five month period there of Oscar films to come out now. But, yes. but those movies that haven't been like they might not true. be done. That is true. So that it, it's going to be an interesting discussion. Uh, would it bother me? No, because I, I no one would have an Oscar, and that would make me happy. But I mean, under the circumstances, I don't, I don't wish that to be the case. I want Nolan to win for a movie he deserves to win for. I haven't seen Tenet, obviously, but the interesting thing about Tenet, and this is what I'm hoping, and I guess this is just the the uh the optimist element in my mind about the situation is that movie theaters will reopen the week of tenant and everyone goes to the theaters it's not gonna all I know. open up this on the same day I get that. listen listen i know i know i'm speaking and even then you're not gonna want that because people that's not gonna necessarily be the first thing people rush out like if anything that would cause tenant to have a little bit of a lesser weekend would it though because i, I hear- yeah dude oh, the, the first weekend we can all go out and do stuff 
I got to be honest. I don't think the first thing people are going to want to do is go into a movie. See, I, again, this is maybe just a magical thinking of mine, but I'm thinking if everything lifts on a Monday and everyone's acclimated back into the week and then Nolan drops Tenet on a Friday, 717, as Gabe was talking about the, uh, with the numbers, 717, if he re- that would be the coolest thing ever because, Dude, because Nolan... 717 people are at a bar getting hammered. No, listen, I think people are at home getting hammered right now. Like, I think people want to get out of the yeah, house. Yeah, I know, but people want to go outside and get hammered with other people no, who are getting hammered. I get that. They're not going to a movie theater. Yeah, dude. but there are a lot of people like... You, me, and Sean and Gabe that live for movies, live for movie theater experiences. So for me, I would argue that's the first place I'll probably go. I would rather go to a movie theater than go to a bar any day of the week. And I think like – Yeah, but we're, but we're talking – you know, we, we, are, we are not representative of uh, – Mainstream yeah. audiences. Yeah, the mainstream audience. But also who's, who's seeing Tenet? Tenet yeah. – Nolan, Nolan has a really passionate following. And I think that like Nolan's fans, again, this is magical thinking. We're speaking completely hypothetical, but this is the last question I'll pose. I know we have to move on. Uh, Gabe uh, and Dune is your number one most anticipated movie of the year. Gabe, correct? Jake, what's yours? Probably Dune. Okay. Yeah. So let's say hypothetically, what's your number one most anticipated movie of the year, Sean? Uh, It's Mank, right? Mank. It's Mank. It's Fincher, but I'm not sure what's going to happen with that now. It's probably next year now. Okay, well, Fincher, I know Fincher finished production, like physical photography on Mank. And, and, okay. you know, he could theoretically be editing. Um, okay, so we get to December, right? Tenants push to December, as Jake said. One of them has to go, Dune or Tenant. Which one do you want to see in December? Is it still Dune? I'm pushing Dune. I'm pushing Dune. Wow, I'm the only Tenant? No, I'm I'm pushing Dune out of the way. I'll take Tenet. I'm taking Tenet over Dune. Yes. Okay, let let me ask you guys something though. Okay, let's let's say like all of this gets resolved by, you know, by by August or September. Okay. And in theory, they could push Dune and slide Tenet into that spot. The implication being that it's potentially an Oscar movie, right? If they don't push it to that spot, does it imply that it's not an Oscar movie? Well, I mean, I, it's an interesting question because I guess Hollywood came out in July. That was an Oscar film. Right. I mean, I, I do think that the Oscar time period has changed a lot over the years. I remember Grand Budapest Hotel coming oh, out yeah. like in February or something like that or Get Out. Yeah. God, I love We've that gotten to a point, though, where I do think a movie can keep traction, like Get Out kept traction all the way through the year. But what's interesting about the tenant discussion is you're mentioning August. And this gets back into the exact discussion we were having two weeks ago. We are dealing now where movie theaters are designed to have scheduled runs in IMAX and Dolby. Now, if Wonder Woman's moving to August, they have some type of IMAX deal there because Patty shot the film in 60 millimeter, 65 millimeter But do you IMAX. think that those deals are just blowing up right no, now? No, I think that's what's happening. I think that's why Bond moved to November. I think what they're doing is they're going, okay, like Fast and Furious 9 didn't meet, need to move 12 months ahead. It did because it found a window where, remember, they have to deal with not only the domestic schedules, the international schedules. So sure. like every theater in China that's going to run Fast and Furious 9 has to somehow be open for IMAX and Dolby the same time, if the release is the same, in the U.S. So they have to map all that out. That's why Universal was smart. You push that thing a year out, you're good. But it's interesting because what other movies were there. So with Wonder Woman moving to August, they found an IMAX window. Tenant has to find an IMAX window. Think about it. If you're Nolan, 
you're not opening up without IMAX. You have to have an IMAX opening. So he's actually in a bit of a tighter situation because he has to find a very specific window. It also you know means I mean? next year, if if any of these dates hold, is going to be the most staggering year we've ever seen in terms of yeah. huge movies every single weekend. If the movie's filming now, get done. Oh, it, no. It, it, I think what's going to happen yeah. is it's going to be 2021 is going to be 2020. And that, and then we're going to go from that forward. I mean, yeah, it, I think everything's just going to. I think it's going to be more of a shift yeah. than than seeing everything squeeze together. Because now even like yeah, like what like we just learned before we started recording, like Spider Man Three, which hasn't even started production yeah. yet, that production's already being pushed back because of everything. So like productions that were in the middle of shooting have now been split. Right. Like they're not going back to Hawaii to shoot Jurassic Park anytime soon. Right. Yeah. So like these movies, especially movies that were going to require a lot of special effects. They're not going to get into, done in time. Also, reshoots are interesting. No one, yeah. no one could have could have had scheduled reshoots in in April. You know no what I mean? Like, like reshoots. But no, but reshoots are, everything that he needs in the moment, and that's it. He gets it. I agree with you. You rewrite the Bible. Reshoots aren't, in my opinion, an indication of a bad movie. I think that a lot of filmmakers do it. But I mean, I do wonder if reshoots are playing into this. Like if Nolan can't reshoot, what if what if Pattinson flubbed the line or something like that? He didn't know it. I actually heard Nolan doesn't edit. It's all in camera. (laughs) It takes him two hours. He 1917s that bitch. (laughs) All right. This week in movies, we're going to move on to uh, over on Hulu, uh, a movie that Gabe adores and i almost want him to turn his microphone on to defend it because have you guys seen Ooh, yeah. portrait of a lady on fire did either of you guys watch portrait of a lady on fire well after your glowing endorsement on twitter i watched Game it is- uh yeah yeah i watched it during the awards season i watched it on a screener and i didn't think it was anything i thought it was fine i thought it was i thought it was good it's just it was very very slow to me you know be slow. super meta would be to watch the movie in a portrait <laughs> while on fire like somehow put a screen <laughs> while there's a fire it's <laughs> a fire going on but i will say that i am in the complete minority <laughs> on this true. film i mean people who see it say that it's like the greatest movie to ever hit them so uh i'm gonna throw it out and say that it's on hulu uh last Let week i recorded in. it gabe gabe can you weigh in on this or yeah i can weigh in i'm recording Oh, good. Hey, oh, hey, hey, nice. Hey. See, we, 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 we can only get Gabe to talk if it's about a subject he wants this to talk This is fair. About. I mean, this yes. is true. <laughs> Everything else, I care about none of this. Tell all the blenders then why they should see a Portrait of a Lady on Fire. A portrait, I think it's magnificent. I It is slow. I totally get it. I went with a friend of mine who felt the same way you did, Sean, who thought it was really slow. He was like, I get that it's a good, like, well-made movie, but it didn't hit him the way that I was like, I left the theater just glowing. And uh, so I get that. And I think it is slow. And I don't know what it is that you need to have or go in there, what sort of uh, preconceptions you need to have going in there to love it. But for me, what I love about it is it's it's a French film and it's, a, it's done in a really French way in that it is super visually rich. Like it's the way that it's... It's beautifully it, shot. It, yes. Not only is it gorgeous, but the the storytelling within the way that like... They'll juxtapose two characters or frame things or shoot things so that they look – they suggest some sort of uh, something else. And not just symbolism but, but very much um, metaphorical in the way that like it composes its imagery, which is not a big American filmmaking style um, across the board. It's an indie filmmaking style in a lot of ways. So for me, as someone who has kind of a photography background and a cinematography background – I was just like reeling from some of the uh, suggestions that like the story was making bef- without even saying anything. 
so if you like visual storytelling, if you like sort of like breaking down uh, cinematography or visuals, it is absolutely gorgeous. The story is great. Um, I think it's a really unique kind of story. It, it's like if you want to sit down and, and experience uh, desire in like the most like pure form, it is. It's really intense in that sense. In that sense, but but yeah, I love it. I don't know that it's for everyone, but I absolutely loved it. I'll watch it go. based on what you just said. It sounds like a movie I'd love. I'd, I'd love <laughs> to hear what you guys think. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that movie. Well, you're all in quarantine, so check it out yeah. and come back with your reactions to Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Also coming to Hulu uh, TV, we're talking about television shows and things that we're catching up on Future Man. Uh, season three is coming to Hulu. Anyone here watching Future Man? Anyone on board with Future Man? Okay, check it out. Coffee and Kareem. Taraji P. Henson and Ed Helms is coming to Netflix. I don't know what that is. Do we know what that is? That's Gabe also? Gabe, nope. you're putting all your recommendations in here. No, it's just something that's coming. Tales from the Loop. Ozark. Do you guys watch Ozark? No, we didn't see Ozark. What is Ozark? Or Ozark uh, season three. How is, is it? I know yeah. what Ozark is. Oh, yes. It's so good, dude. Is it? Oh, I'm, 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 it's the best season of the show so far. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm on episode seven. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, because I took, because after I finished season three of Better Call Saul, I took your advice and uh, took a break mm-hmm. to let it really kind of marinate, especially after what happens at the end of season three. So I uh, thought, okay, well, I'm going to enjoy um, Tiger King. And well, that didn't last long because I plowed through all seven episodes. And uh, so now I am uh, seven, seven deep into Ozark and then I'm going to go back to Better Call Saul. Yeah, gotcha. I'm on episode six of tiger king and i'm on like episode 15 of season one of lost which is great yeah that's where i'm catching up and we should probably mention i know these aren't in the movies of the week but vod as we're recording this today specifically sonic hits vod and bad boys for life so if you are looking for something to watch on vod but those are available now uh can we also mention can we plug the we're gonna have a bonus episode we're gonna have a bonus episode this week because we got Ben Schwartz, uh, the voice of Sonic and comedian that you know from uh, several other projects, uh, called into the show. And we were able to get him on f- uh, for an episode that was going to be an interview that we were going to include in one of our regular episodes until it just ballooned into uh, a tremendous conversation that went almost an hour and a half. Um, so instead of trying to shoehorn it into a normal episode, we want to let it breathe and be its own thing. So we're going to have that later this week. Um, you guys are Here's getting this episode now. Yeah. I'll give a tease, though. Uh, this is the first interview we've ever done where the the person we were talking to got up to change their laundry during <laughs> the actual interview. <laughs> yes. In the Annie, coolest way possible. Annie taught us a fun game, um, which you'll get to hear yeah. all of us play. So it's, that's coming up later this week. So you'll have two Real Blend episodes uh, coming to you. Uh, to faithful blenders uh, by the end of the week to keep you all busy while you're staying safe. Even your un- even the unfaithful and, ones, and you indoors. can have them too. Yes, the unfaithful ones can have them also. Which brings us to our blend game, which this week uh, brought together uh, superstars Ben Stiller and Edgar Wright, um, two people <laughs> who I don't know if they're friends or not, but decided that in the middle of our needle drop blend, because Kevin was smart enough to tag Ben Stiller uh, in his example, which was a Walter Mitty example. Uh, ben Stiller decided to weigh in and praise uh, Edgar Wright, to which Edgar Wright then dropped Ben Stiller a personal note and then hijacked our Twitter thread uh, to tell everybody how much he enjoyed Ben Stiller's work. 
in uh well what was that miniseries that ben escape did? of danamora which is an That's amazing right. you said is amazing yeah. right oh my god that show is i know gabe watched it there's a del toro oh he didn't there's a gabe huh. there's a del toro delivery line in that show where he says don't tell anybody which is just shivering it's unbelievable benicio right not Benicio del toro yeah benicio yeah <laughs> that's what i see guillermo in there uh so neil drop blend kevin you get to go first so this is a, a use of an existing song uh in a movie so that uh we believe the way that we can sort of set it up we're picking our favorite uh use of music in a song that uh either developed a character moved a scene along theoretically should be so inseparable uh, from the scene itself that every time you hear the song, you're instantly transported to uh, to that scene. What so, a great way to describe thank it. Thank you. It's almost like I co-host a podcast on a weekly basis. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, you get to go Do first. Do we have three different ones? Oh, yes. I was. Qu- this is a hard one. I was questioning my pick on this, um, unt- and I was going back and forth in my mind, and then the way Sean just explained it, meaning that the, the scene itself – is completely inseparable from the song. Now completely solidified my. Oh, can I guess yours? Yeah. Is it stuck in the middle with you? Yeah, it has to be. <laughs> I mean, yes, no, I knew it. <laughs> only because it is okay. So I mean, Reservoir Dogs is something I was obsessed with for obviously for a long time. I had the Mr. White poster in my room when I was in high school. Uh, you shoot me in a dream. You better wake up and apologize. I was just. But there was a time period when I've mentioned this in the show before, where they released the 15th anniversary edition. And they had different colors for each release, um, and I remember on that particular DVD release, they had the first time that I'd ever seen it. I was so excited. Well, I shouldn't have been excited to see this because it's disgusting. But I was excited. I was interested <laughs> to know what it was going to be like. Tarantino was going to give you an, another angle of the ear being cut off um, oh. in the spe- in the special features. Uh, he gave you the angle that you could actually see it happening because in in the movie Quentin, uh, you know, pans away from the uh, from mm-hmm. the ear being cut off, which in my opinion is way more terrifying. Which is the same reason why Seven is so uh, brilliant because the violence is not really on camera; it's the aftermath or the discussion of it. And I think that that's a much more powerful way to display violence, especially in something that graphic in a scene like that. But the, I remember getting that DVD and watching that scene. It was it, it's a really bad cut by the way like the ear looks super fake it looks it looks really bad but it was interesting to see michael madsen take off a fake ear from marvin nash's uh ear um it's so him talking that, into the ear when he talks into the <laughs> the cut yeah. off ear yeah it's disturbing. I, but that scene is interesting and i think the way sean described it uh is the best way to put it there that scene does not work without that song now Listen, you can make an argument all day long. Yes, I've never seen the scene without that song. I never saw a different version of it. But it's it's those two married elements of soundtrack and score that Tarantino just does so masterfully and so magically in his movies that they become one. Um, I feel like when you're watching a film a lot of times, there's a soundtrack song that hits and you start to wonder, oh, I know that song. You're pulled out of the movie and they're two separate experiences. Now the song is playing them like old school, for example, when Metallica master of puppets comes on or whatever, when they're picking up the, the, when they're going to get the pledges or whatever, that's, I don't, I wouldn't consider that to be an inseparable song from the scene, but it, it added to it. But like, I guess that's a random one to go to in my mind. But I think that reservoir dogs, that scene alone, it, it is the moment that reveals who Mr. Blonde is though. Also. Yeah. So Mr. Blonde, Michael Madsen's character has been kind of just right. He's been sitting in the corner 
back area of the warehouse, you know, smoking a cigarette or whatever he's doing. He's always been, I guess, I think until that point, super low key. He's also the one, I think we we know at this point, right, that he's the one who went off with the gun during the robbery. I think Buscemi and Keitel already had the discussion about that in the side room while Roth was bleeding out. I'm pretty sure. You're so asking in this, us? No, no, no. How many no, times just, have you seen this? <laughs> I, I already know it's the case. I'm just kind of covering my own butt to make sure my timeline's right. So you can tell I know the movie, obviously. Uh, so in that scene, it's it's when he goes over to the radio and it's the, it's the turn of it. It's the sound of the radio dial moving between stations and then finding the uh, the announcer. I think it's Stephen Wright, right? Who's doing the voice. Oh, right. Of the yeah, yeah, yeah. But what, did Quentin Superstar. say that he wanted a different song? Did Quentin want a different song in that scene or was it always stuck in the middle? I forget. I, For some reason, I, it just hit me that I thought he wanted a different one. I'm not well, I feel sure. feel like that happens a lot, right? Yeah. Where like they can't get the song that they want yeah. and then they end up. Yeah. But like, well, either like way. With Breakfast Club. It's inseparable yeah. now. But but Stephen Wright saying like Hey Billy Super Sounds of the seventies, uh, Steelers Wheel, which which it's funny for many many years I thought that was a Bob Dylan song. Uh, I didn't know it was, and even though they say Steelers Wheel in the movie, I never computed it. I always thought maybe the song was called Steelers Wheel. I didn't know that song prior to That's Reservoir funny. Dogs. Um, so that was a, a a new experience when I first saw the movie in high school. But it's the way that Michael Madsen dances in that scene with the song playing that speaks to who. He is as a disgusting murderer, right? Mm. So like like we – and Tarantino always does this really interesting thing where he takes violence and he makes it entertaining in a very disturbing way, but, you, but you're entertained by it. Like you, when you watch Pulp Fiction, you're entertained when Samuel L. Jackson is going off in the Ezekiel 2517. It's an entertaining piece of dialogue even though he's, a, he's committing a horrible act. But there's something, and I, I don't think any of you guys would disagree with me, there's something weirdly entertaining about watching Madsen dance to that track. Even though it's a horrifying character, you are, as an audience member, entertained by it. And I don't think oh, that's yeah. wrong to say. Yeah, so, no, that's fair. And it's a movie, it's fiction, obviously. But I think that that song really is the moment where Blonde comes out. And that's the person we, we know who he is. And it's a song that he clearly likes that he's listened to in his own time. And I've actually never, ever, ever gotten into this much detail about this before. And now that I'm talking about it with you guys, new things are popping in my head. Think about it this way. Think about his character at home, driving on a radio, listening to that song prior to that scene. Oh, like think about yeah. him. Think about Michael Madsen's character in his daily life, going to pick up tacos or something like that and coming home, feeding his dog, singing Steeler's Wheel to himself. Like he clearly knows the song. He knows the lyrics. It's something that gives How us about insight. hearing it after the fact? Will he even think about the ear or will he? Right. Is he just so think, psychotic that it doesn't oh, register? Well, that doesn't dead. register. Well, he yeah, dies. he's yeah, dead. True. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> true but, he dies. <laughs> which by the way, I, I have, I spent so much time in high school watching that shootout scene at the end to see who actually gets hit. Because I couldn't, I always wondered who and why Pink didn't get clipped in that scene, right? Because Pink is in that, in uh, Buscemi. Stop pointing that gun at my dad! Right. So like, oh God, the way Chris um, Chris Penn uh, delivers that line is unbelievable. But anyway, so I'm going off on a tangent because a lot of things came up in my head while I was talking about it. But it's these games that really kind of start to make you really understand why you love something. And I think we, all of us would agree, we all know we love things in movies, but sometimes we don't know why. Yeah, and I've to this day, to this moment on this show right now, I never thought about Michael Madsen's character 
at home or somewhere else learning and listening to that song to apply it in that scene. And that's interesting, that's interesting. that I yeah. thought about now. So that's, that, that, that is definitely my, my favorite needle, bo- needle drop example. Um, but it is a very horrifying scene. So I'm not, you know, condoning it. But, Kevin, you know, do you very happen scene. to know Mr. Blonde's favorite Frankie Muniz sitcom? Oh, wow. Um, Wait, he has oh, a Frankie. Mu- uh, Mr. Blonde has a Frankie Muniz sitcom. Malcolm in the middle with Malcolm in the middle with you. Oh, yeah, stuck, yeah, yeah. stuck in the Malcolm in the middle with you. <laughs> I like Malcolm come in on, the middle. Come on, come on. All right, <laughs> I get to go next, and uh, mine. So mine is going to contradict what um, what we were saying about this. In that, I think you can hear the song, and it don't, it won't necessarily make you think of this movie instantly. Um, but to me, it was the use of the song in the scene that totally elevated uh, what was happening. And um, I will give you guys a hint. It involves John Cusack, but it's not uh, Say Anything. No, it's not the boombox and Say Anything. Better off um, dead. No, it's in gross point blank. Oh. There's a moment when he's at the reunion um, when, and so the whole point of better off, uh, gross point blank, now you got movie. better off dead. The whole point of gross point blank is that he's an assassin who's going back to his hometown, uh, for his high school reunion. He's facing all sorts of existential dread about even wanting to go back. Uh, cause he's kind of this isolated loner who makes a living killing people. Uh, it's a seriously dark comedy. Uh, he rekindles a romance with Minnie driver, this girl that he's been lo- in love with. He's trying to figure out what he's doing with his life. He's totally, um, judging the people around him. And when he gets to a point uh, during the reunion where he meets this lady who has a baby uh, and she kind of cuts through all of his nonsense, like in, in a really sharp way of saying like, you know, you, you end up having a kid and, and all these things that you're thinking about, they don't matter anymore. They all get stripped away. And he stares into the baby's eyes and the greatest. So the, the, what I actually consider to be the greatest song ever written, which is under pressure uh, by oh. David Bowie and Queen soars up uh, underneath and it's been playing underneath. You didn't even necessarily realize it until he looks into this baby's eyes and the, the music swells and David Bowie comes crashing in. And it's just a, the perfect moment of like self-realization for this character that everything he's been fretting about through the course of the entire movie uh, means nothing. And it, it like wipes away everything that he's been dealing with and centers him in a way that just was what the movie was building itself to. It was the perfect choice of song for that moment. And it almost gets even funnier because then he goes out into the hallway um, with this new sense of awareness and gets attacked by the assassin who's been tracking him around town the entire time. And they have to have a huge fight in the hallway. So it's, it's, it's the way that that movie sort of shifts gears so effortlessly. And Cusack gets a lot of credit, um, I think for having a number of really great musical moments uh, in his films, obviously uh, say anything being one of them. High fidelity has a number of excellent uh, musical moments too. I think that music is really important to him uh, when he's making films and probably with Cameron Crowe also too, but gross point blank to me has a, one of the most memorable soundtracks, Uh, but that moment using under pressure, which I just think is one of is probably the best song ever written and used in that scene uh, that is the needle drop blend pick for me. And it's a little offbeat 
Good one. But if you've seen it, you might uh, recognize it as something that really, really, really works. The other one I have to give a quick shout out to before I throw it to, to Jake. This is one I honestly wanted to go if, with. If you say mine, I'm going to be so pissed. I don't think I'm going to. Uh, mine okay. is uh, Backstreet Boys in the end credits for This Is The End. When they go up to heaven yeah. and uh, Jay is able to say, they said, Jay, you can think of anything you want. And he he thinks and then the Backstreet Boys show up and and they play Backstreet Boys. That back. That's a really great one. I love that movie. I actually. swear to God, dude, I will always remember. I'm actually getting goosebumps thinking about it. When that scene happened in our packed preview house, it was like being at a concert. Like everybody was so hyped for that cameo that we all felt like we were at a Backstreet Boys concert. Because it's really funny. You hear them start That's singing awesome. it. You see all of them come out. By the end, the cast we is see, involved You see the hand go off first. Yes, you see the hand go up and make the make the sign. And that that I watched that soon today on YouTube. It was hysterical. At what point can we all admit that I want it that way as an absolute masterpiece? Oh, I'll say it right now. I, 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 I like 90s boy band. I think the just actually, a master, the, masterpiece i think i've disturbed michelle um in that i listen to a lot of uh backstreet boys and sync things like that yeah that's just catchy it's catchy music what's dude i love one direction i love i love the new harry styles album i'm all in there's nothing wrong with that yeah no no harry styles's albums are unbelievable you guys would be surprised they're very bowie i haven't really listened to just because he's in dunkirk stop it no um jake all right so jake what did you think i was gonna say uh, well, so mine actually falls more so into into your realm, Sean, where people can absolutely he- hear this song and not think of the movie. I, I don't. I hear this song and I think of the movie, but I think that the song elevates the moment uh, to one of my all-time favorite movie moments ever, and it is uh, when Tiny Dancer kicks in and almost fans. Oh, yeah. yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Um, when – because it starts out in the, in the movie because they're – you know, they're – he – Wayne was drugged out of his mind and they're pulling him out. You know, he had the big fight with the band and they're pulling him, you know, back to the bus and, you know, they're leaving the kids. And, and so, and so, you know, the, the, the initial notes of, of Elton John start, start playing. And then they all get on the bus and they're all pissed at each other yeah. and they're not talking to each other. And then slowly the drummer just kind of starts drumming the beat, kind of start, you know, and then one, one person starts singing and the other one starts singing. And then slowly the whole bus starts singing together and I think one of the things I really like about that moment is because it is about the music. It's about the fact that like that song was sort of this great equalizer that kind of brought them all back. Like they all hated each other in that moment, but then they used music as a reminder of like, guys, this is why we're here. Mm-hmm. Like this is this is why we're doing this. Like it's fine. What happened happened, and that is one of my like you know I know we've done done scene blend, and I chose the 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 Transformers the Trans- Rex. Breakout and Jurassic Park, but number two, a very close number two, is the bus scene from Almost Famous. It's, I, I think yeah. that it's such a great just movie. Such, like probably like just it's, that's one of my all time favorite movies. That's one of the all time. I, I I thought about doing um the moment that the I call it the Pulp Fiction theme. I know that's not what it's called, but like when Dick it, Dale when she freezes yeah. and then the Pulp Fiction theme yeah, comes yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. But then my thought is like then it just goes to credits. Yeah, and it's just this the song play like so like the, it's not really like doesn't really add anything to like the scene because it's just like you know that but uh so so that's why i chose not to go with that but i but yeah it's funny you could do i honestly i thought about um say anything uh in your eyes Mm -hmm. i thought about um free bird from elizabeth town which i uh, yeah where the the sprinkler systems are going off and the band is still playing jerry Maguire. i thought about secret garden from jerry Maguire. Uh, right. Or free fallen from Jerry Maguire. Cameron Crowe and his yeah. needle drops are outstanding. Yeah. 
Uh, he's up there with who I'm going to mention here now too, Edgar Wright, because Ben Stiller, uh, comedian, director, extraordinaire Ben Stiller, uh, played along with the blend game this week, uh, much like Jessica Chastain did the previous week. He chose uh, Ben Stiller chose all of Baby Driver, as he said, <laughs> uh, is one big amazing needle drop sequence. Never have uh, seen anything like it. Lens on Film chose uh, Mad World from Donnie Darko, which is another really great use of that song That's a great at the one. end of that movie. Carrie Case went with Tiny Dancer uh, in Almost Famous as well, too. She's a huge uh, Cameron Crowe fan as well. Uh, Rachel Bowen chose uh, the Immigrant Song uh, used in Taika Waititi's Thor Ragnarok, Heaven's favorite MCU film. That's a great one. Uh, just a really great uh, use of that song. Did you guys <laughs> ever see someone recutting that scene from an, uh, Infinity War? And it would have been so badass oh, whenever Thor yes. jumps in. lands back in Wakanda, yeah. but they put Infinity Ward. Like it, it really <laughs> makes me wish they had done that because <laughs> yes. it would have been such a great callback. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I sort of get why they didn't because like it takes you know. It's but pretty that, great. Like though. if he had landed to Infinity War, or uh, no, if he landed to Immigrant Song, song I know. I'll take oh. Sylvester over that any day though. Just that Sylvester Avengers. Score is yeah, but you don't like Ragnarok. <laughs> I, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> How do you like Ragnarok? No, you like Iron Man 2 more than Ragnarok. No, Ant Man. No, Iron Man 3. Like Iron, Iron Man, Man 3. 3 is three. way better than Ragnarok, though. I mean, in my opinion. Ah. I love Iron Man 3, though. I like that. Uh, Iron Man 3 was underrated. Heavily For next underrated. week, uh, we have reached the 2000s in our hashtag underrated 2000s blend. Mm. So we're going decade by decade and we're picking. Uh, Titles in that decade that we think don't get enough love. So give some attention to underrated 2000s blend and you can play along on social media or you can send us your pick via real blend at cinemablend.com. Fair share of people now sending us emails, which I think is really cool. Uh, not just their, um, their picks for the blend game. God, where did my brain go? But reviews also. And that's what we're up to right now. Art Mart, Art Mart 21 from Canada says, great informative podcast. Well, hello, Art Mart, and we're sorry. Uh, Quentin Tarantino is my favorite director, he says. Great interview. I'm writing my scripts and planning on shooting my first feature. You guys bring a lot to the table. I'm happy I found your podcast. I have scripts in a few genres. I'm sure that there are quite a few inspiring filmmakers listening to your podcast. What I would like to hear from you guys is individual views on each genre. Short and sweet summary on what... Uh, as a definition, a genre that you choose to discuss is and what each of you is looking for and what you think brings the audience to watch movies in that genre, sort of nuts and bolts. So if you guys could pick a different genre for each podcast, that would be great. A bit of a school, a film school bite in each episode. Great job. So I just want to point out to Art Martin, and I don't know the numbers um, of the past episodes, but we definitely have done specific genres uh, for the blend game. We did Westerns. I know we've done uh, film noir uh, and we did romantic comedies. So you can go back through uh, some of our past episodes and I think get a pretty good insight into uh, our choices. And then um, I think we're bringing conversations like this about different genres to the, to the um, show on a regular basis. But thank you so much for that feedback. That's a really great review and a good thing for us to settle on going forward. Okay, again, I want to plug that this is not the only episode of Real Blend that you're going to be getting this week. We will have our bonus episode, a free-flowing conversation with the great Ben Schwartz, who came on to primarily talk about uh, Sonic, which is coming to digital this week. Uh, again, shortening that release window between uh, theater 
theater and home video. But then he got into so many other really great stories about his career and things that he's been involved in. And uh, we had a lot of fun with him. So that will be out before the end of the week is up. You guys can double your Real Blend fix. Uh, on social media, you can follow the guys at Jake's Takes, at Kevin McCarthy TV, at Sean underscore O'Connell. Drop us a review on iTunes or send it to us an email. We will read it at the top of the show. And again, we'll be back before next week with a bonus episode. Boys, anything to say before we wrap it up for uh, another quarantine episode? Tenet? Tenet. Can that be the new ending? Next year. <laughs> oh, don't, don't do that to Kevin, please. He's... <laughs> That's the only thing that's holding out for him. Literally. As the only thing I'm, I'm living for. Well, until then. You know he has a wife, right? Until that happens. Dunkirk. Dunkirk. Shark is the villain. No, he's not. The mayor is the villain. <laughs> it shows over. The mayor let people go back home. in the water. The I, I'm not listening. I gotta go. I gotta go. I gotta go. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.